Shake the jukebox, it's so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the jukebox, kicking a rhyme. Talking about music all the time. Oh yeah! Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kick the Jukebox. I'm Louie Perlman. I'm Kyle Gordon! <laughs> Is that your Beastie Boys impression? Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> and I nailed it. Uh, so let's move on. <laughs> yeah, I do a BC Boys impression every yeah! day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is Kick the Jukebox. This is your favorite musicology podcast where we deep dive into an album of the week. And if you haven't guessed, this week we're doing a deep dive into the classic Paul Anka album. No, no, we are not. <laughs> We're doing Beastie Boys Paul's Boutique this week. This podcast is also an exploration of our evolving taste in music and our friendship. You can rate and review us on a podcast of your choice if you like what we are doing. Kyle, talking about exploring our friendship, how are you? What's going on? I am great. Thank you for asking, Louie. Um, I've had a nice week. I This was week one of, or was it week two? Of unemployment know. for you? Of unemployment. It yeah. was week two because I'm keeping track via, <laughs> let's do this podcast together. Yes. So this is week two of <laughs> unemployment and it was pretty fun. And I started reading a new book. It's great. called Say Nothing. Mm -hmm. um, it's really, really good. It's about I have to give a shout out to my friend Maggie who recommended it to me. Nice. But it's about the troubles in Northern Ireland. But it's, Oh, you uh, love the troubles in Northern Ireland. I love the troubles. And specifically, it's uh, sort of told, you know, you learn about the troubles, but it's specifically built around sort of something like a murder mystery, like a famous murder that happened during the troubles. Oh, so it's awesome. really, really good. But as it happens, anytime... Anything related to Ireland or the Troubles comes up or I get into it in life, that means I'm going to spend the week listening to the Pogues. And oh, that's so, so nice. Yeah. And as, as happens, uh, you know, keeping with that tradition, I've been uh, listening to the Pogues, specifically the album, my favorite album by them, Rum, Sodomy, and the Lash. Actually, I think what what I always think of when I get into a like phase where I'm listening to a lot of the Pogues, uh, I think of this story specifically of Elliot Smith, uh -huh. um, like before he went solo when he was still with the band Heat Miser. I rem I don't know how I heard this story, but apparently one time they were stuck, like they were on tour and they were stuck in Arkansas or something in a Walmart parking lot on uh, St. Patrick's Day, and they spent the whole day just playing Pogues songs in like a Walmart parking lot and, and just thinking of Elliot Smith doing that in like you know 1993 or four or whatever it was is uh I, I always think of that I don't yeah know that's why. lovely that's a wonderful little music <laughs> rock and roll story yeah, yeah we should do the Pogues on this podcast we definitely should yeah we haven't covered them yet to. yeah that'd yeah, be fun next my, my next pick will be that album for okay sure. that's a promise regular listeners and if kyle yeah. breaks it everybody <laughs> could get really mad you can hunt me down yeah yeah <laughs> for the podcast that we're not getting paid to do yeah <laughs> that you can choose different music you like well that sounds great you know i've started listening to wind of change which is the podcast you recommended a few weeks ago. Yeah. I'm yeah, enjoying that, it so far. I like that. That's podcasts. actually really funny. The the Patrick Radden Keefe. Oh, that's it's the, the same guy. The, yeah, Great. same guy. Yeah, very, very cool. Yeah, you know, and that's something that he's good at is relating 
stories that are maybe about one thing, but then making like this myopic story into like weaving this web that like expands it and makes you learn about a whole bunch of different subjects, you know, within this one story. Yeah, yeah explaining com uh, complex and sometimes a bit difficult to parse like larger political or social concepts, especially like the troubles, right? Like it's, there's yeah. so many facets to that. It's really complex for people who aren't like super familiar with it. So he, he kind of, he, he addresses the politics without getting caught in the weeds. It's a great, it's a great way to like be a journalist. And right. yeah, that podcast is, is very interesting. Yeah. A lot of the stuff you've recommended lately, I've been listening to, Nice. Uh, you know, the podcast, I listened to that Twee record label. That was really fun from yeah. England. Oh, what yeah. What called again? Uh, L Records. L Records, yes. L Records, mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, you've had a great influence. I've had a good run. I've had you've a had good a, run. You have had a good run. You have had a good run. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's great. Um, I love that you're listening to Pogues this week. I love it. <laughs> nice. And Louie, how... Uh... What have you been listening to? Oh, okay. Well, I have a, a thing to tell you about that I think mm. you're going to find really funny. I'm excited. Do you know about this? There's a website that I discovered this week that I want to talk about that is called rave.dj. Do you know no. about this? Never heard of it. It's really strange. <laughs> what it is, is it's a website where you can plug in two different songs from YouTube and then a algorithm will mash mix the songs together. Oh, that's amazing. And it's really wild because mm -hmm. it is a computer. So certain stuff that with the human hand of a DJ would actually be great, a computer cannot handle <laughs> at all. So it's always a crapshoot. And it's like these little two and a half minute long mash mix bursts of like a computer being like, I think you will enjoy this human. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's what it is. So like, honestly, a lot of my spare time this week as a, that I normally spend listening to music, putting stuff on that isn't like our album of the week that we're covering. I've just been hanging out on rave.dj <laughs> which most people seem to use based on like their recently posted mixes to like mash up to video game themes and stuff. Cause it's all people probably 20 years younger than me. No mm -hmm. offense to them. Like that's, I'm not trying to be ageist there. It's just like, mm -hmm. they're not like really interested in mashing up like Zap and Roger with Missy yeah, Elliott, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, like, yeah, as much yeah, as yeah. I am, you know? Yeah. So I've been doing all these mash mixes and some of them are like, post-apocalyptic computer <laughs> noise nightmares <laughs> and some of them are fucking great and, and then everything in the spectrum in between so nice. yeah uh so rave.dj and i'd share like you know if there was like a social way to share it maybe i'll put some in the show notes for this week like links to some of the ones i've made because there's absolutely no way it's not like a social media it's not like a social media site where you can share there's really no way to be like, go to my rave.dj page, listen to all my bullshit I've done this week instead of doing actual real creative work. It's just like... <laughs> well, anyway. as we learned, as we will learn and we'll discuss on this album, simply mashing two songs together is art. <laughs> well, yeah, but having a computer helper do it for you, sure. I feel is less artful. Although, you know, certainly there are songs that I've mashed together that I feel it was a creative pursuit because only I would think to do it. You know, like Lights and That's Music by, by Cut Copy with all of the lights by Kanye West. And that one turned out 
really well. Nice. <laughs> that was wonderful. Yeah. Nice. Anyway, so yeah, rave.dj, a really, a real like musical website for the apocalypse we're experiencing right now. <laughs> really, really bizarre. Sounds about right. <laughs> but yeah, let's let's get into the album. Let's talk a little bit about Paul's Boutique. Yeah. Uh, yeah, let's, let's talk about it. I mean, I feel ready. I felt ready for a long time. Boom. <laughs> to talk about this one and I doing my research into Paul's boutique for this week, something that I think is kind of unique about it in terms of the albums that we discuss is that this album really has been discussed to death. There are multiple books written about this album. There are multiple other podcasts, radio shows The you know, the beastie boys wrote a book uh, in 2018 uh, mm-hmm. as well, like that really goes into details about this. So of course, for our listeners that are less familiar with this album, I would love to talk about why this album has such a strong hold in the firmament of, you know, it's considered one of the greatest hip hop records of all time. So yeah. it's great to talk about that and sort of talk about the story behind it. But I feel like it's, this one should be a little more about why we like it and sort of yeah. why there's a connection, why we have a bit of a connection with it. Right. Um, and, and just to start that off, talking about the Beastie Boys in general, you know, they, I've always felt a real connection with them. I've been listening to them for about, I'd say about 20 years now, since I was in mm-hmm. my like late teens, early 20s. And mm-hmm. I definitely have a memory of hello nasty coming out when i was in mm. high school and a lot of my friends listening to it and i remember yeah. on that tour one of my friends went to go see them live and that she was really excited and i was just kind of like aren't those sort of those shitty guys that you know <laughs> like i still had this sort of the image of them from their early def jam days in my head uh-huh. and i was like why do we still care about these guys but i definitely was really I was really impressed with Intergalactic. I remember that. Yeah, being a I remember the first time I heard that song too. And this would have been well after that album came out. But yeah. even then, I remember being like mesmerized by that song. That yeah. song. Yeah, the production on it is beautiful, and that's definitely something that they are really blessed in that. Regardless of the later albums for the Beastie Boys that were self-produced or the like string of albums that they had in their heyday and in their kind of reinvention phase, they've always worked with really incredible producers. Yeah. And this album is definitely a real collaboration between them and the Dust Brothers who produced mm-hmm. this for them, who mm-hmm. we'll get into, but were interesting sort of uh, collagists on the scene, like, you know, the kind of musical bizarro masterminds on the, mm-hmm. uh, on the LA scene in the late 80s when these guys recorded Paul's Boutique. So yeah, mm-hmm. but, but my personal connection, I feel like their s- sense of humor more than anything really aligns with mine and yeah. i think that it's a shared aesthetic of them being these goofball weird awkward very very humorous jewish new york guys <laughs> yeah. which i was really drawn to uh, and why I, I moved to new york is because mm. i wanted to be around people like that yeah so for me it was pretty easy to get into them. And I, I got into them right when I moved here in 2002. 
because that's when to the five boroughs was released which was yeah. their latest their their album then and it's such a love letter to new york and i was i was discovering my my love of the city so it sort of came at a really good time for me but i've always argued that these guys would have had incredibly successful careers equally successful if they had ended up being some sort of like sketch group yeah probably yeah right yeah like there's something about that vibe about them that it seems like they're really coming from a comedic place with everything that they do and mm-hmm. that everything is sort of, it feels kind of like character work. And I think that's why it works so well. Like, you, like there's a lot of macho bravado on this record, but it there's such a knowing, winking glance and they they really honed their way of doing that in between License to Ill, their first record and this record. Because License to Ill, I think they were trying to achieve something similar you know, sort of take the piss out of like the frat boy image, but it was for a lot of fans misconstrued as being who they actually were and it kind of spiraled out of control and they had kind of created a monster with License to Ill. But this is so much more contained in terms of that material. Yeah, and I think that was something they've talked about too is like, you know, a special, like License to Ill was, you know, multi-platinum, um, massive. Uh, I think it was the first rap album to go number one. It was, you know, yeah. it was just this insane cultural phenomenon. Yeah, they um, were the Elvises of rap. They yes. took this black art form and made it very mainstream because they were very white and palatable for a larger audience. Yeah, All right, and yeah. and I believe them when they say this. I don't think it's like revisionist. Like I, they were beat like. I agree with you when or when you say and they say that they were doing characters like they were being in character as like snarky little shithead like frat party bros. Yeah. And um, and and that it was a character and they were making fun of those people. And I think it's clear because, first of all, they were punks, uh, you know, famously before they were a hip hop group. So. And they've mentioned it too. Is like they didn't even really know. Like they grew up in Manhattan. Like the preppy party bros that they were making fun of. Like they wouldn't have even met those people. Like yeah, they they're not. They're not associated with Manhattan or New York, especially not in the '80s. So I think they were kind of making fun of this like '80s frat Reagan-y bro. Yes. Um, and like you know, kind of combining that with like a bit of metal and hip hop and blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, they were playing dumb kind of. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. They were, yeah, they were in character. Yeah. And just, and just for the record, two of them grew up in Brooklyn mm-hmm. and were just kind of nice, you know, smart Brooklyn kids. That's right. MCA and Ad Rock. And then Mike D was a, was a lower Manhattan kid. Yeah. And Mike D's family are art dealers. So mm-hmm. he certainly grew up, you know, sort of in an artistic environment but yeah, like it is it is interesting because they were a hardcore band and notably, you know, and this is all explained so well, you know, in the recently released BC Boys Story documentary. So we don't like totally need to go into these details here in terms of like the whole trajectory of them as a band, but they had Kate Schellenbach in the band who ended up, they kicked her out of the band, which they highly regret now. And then she ended up forming a band called the Lunachicks. And at that time, they were a hardcore, they were a hardcore outfit. And they played a lot at venues like The Kitchen, you Mm -hmm. know, which was like part of the hardcore scene in lower Manhattan in the early 80s. 
but they became really in love with hip hop as did a lot of kids who were growing up in New York. So they decided to start doing half hardcore shows, half hip hop shows, and they would read their lyrics off of little slips of paper. <laughs> you know, there's footage of them doing that. And it's kind of amazing to see the trajectory. That's like, we're talking like 84, you know, 84 or so to 89 and the amount of time that they had put into rapping and what is accomplished lyrically and in their delivery on Paul's Boutique, uh-huh. which is just like such a tour de force when it just comes to like, you know, the actual art of rapping yeah. is really incredible. And it's a really amazing leap for them to make in that period of time. It was such a formative amount of time and it definitely has to do with the amount that they were touring because Def Jam had them on the road constantly touring under um, License to Ill, which probably made them really, really, really proficient live when they yeah. were trashed, trashed during shows or when shows didn't get shut down early because the kids were rioting, like what happened at a show in England that I just read about, which is like for the Beastie Boys, I think the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Like, I just can't even imagine these like fucking New York dweebs and everybody's like, all right, let's just dismantle society. You know what, <laughs> yeah. I, you know what I mean? Like, like this isn't a black flag show here. Like, right. Exactly. I'm just like, guys, come on. So yeah. Uh, so License to Ill, their first record was produced by Rick Rubin. He brought the metal influence. It's considered a early rap metal album although i feel that that is doing the album actually kind of a disservice yeah because rap metal ended up becoming such a specific name for such a such a unlike genre and sampling whatever you know they sampled on that album fucking thin lizzy or whatever mm-hmm. and <laughs> the beastie boys rapping over it i don't think totally constitutes rap metal but it, it was a good representation of like Big, the big like guitar metal sound melding with the Beastie Boys, melding with with the hip hop sound. You know, and I think a lot of that didn't age very well. Like it doesn't sound. It sounds really dated. It's really dated. Yeah, but it's also that makes it a very lovely time capsule. Of, yeah, for like sure. the mid '80s. Yeah, like I would rather put on License to Ill than listen to any of the hair metal stuff from that era. Sure. Just because it's so much Agreed. more creative. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. Um, and, you know, and it's and it's Rick Rubin, who is in his own right, very, very, very smart. You know, yeah. like a really interesting producer. But then after that, they were really burnt out and they decided to take a break from hanging out with each other for a while, which makes perfect sense for three men who had just been like young men who had just spent like the last like three years of their lives like 24 7 together yeah uh but they all decided to relocate to LA just to like take a break from being in New York and and really just kind of have some time to themselves and uh while they were there they didn't really know if they were gonna record anything more together and they they just they just didn't really they didn't have a direction and they also had were contemplating at the time breaking their record contract with Def Jam because they owed Def Jam several other albums at this time but they didn't want to work with them anymore cuz Jeff Def Jam were not paying them properly and they were not treating them well as well and Def Jam sort of saw them as a novelty as right. did the rest of you know 
everybody else saw them as sort of this, oh, look at the funny white rappers, you know? Right. So when they were taking a break, and then the three of them went to go hang out with the Dust Brothers. Uh, they were over at Matt Dyke's house, who was one of the Dust Brothers at the time, and then founded, like, it was an early boutique record label, which mm-hmm. they didn't call a record label be- or a boutique label because they didn't have that terminology yet, but it was called Delicious Vinyl, which was basically a, a early, it was an early label that was for smaller releases and was run by really like this is early in the history of hip-hop being embraced by white people so it was considered somewhat of a novelty with one of the all-time great record label logos of all time oh you know what i didn't i don't know the record explain it uh tell it for our listeners oh it's so cool it's just a it's just a you you probably would recognize it but it's just an image of this it's a cartoon image of this guy taking a bite out of a record label and it or, or out of a record like a vinyl record and it looks it's so cool. That's wonderful. And <laughs> you also know who they signed with for larger distribution later, because it fits into the story of Kick the Jukebox. Uh, I don't know. Can you guess who had their finger on the pulse and decided to distribute delicious vinyl stuff to, like, fucking everybody? Mm, Chris David Blackwell Bird? from Island ah! Records, baby! <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. That I know. That makes perfect sense. Another, another big guy in, in the story of... Uh, all the music that we like together. Yes, yes, indeed. So they were over at Matt Dyke's house and they were playing for the Beastie Boys some of their tracks, which were massively sampled audio collages, beat match together. And they were sort of like cunningly doing it because they liked the Beastie Boys and they wanted to work with them. But what they were kind of expecting was for the BC Boys to be like, all right, let's start working with you and we'll work on some simplified tracks together that we can rap over. And instead the BC Boys were like, we want to rap over this. And apparently that decision may have been like rather inspired by copious amounts of hashish. But, (laughs) but But regardless, that is what makes the record so insanely complex. And I think that a lot of the backing tracks that had already been recorded by the Dust Brothers inspired the BC Boys to write more lyrically dense stuff than they ever had before as well. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so so the Dust Brothers, interesting guys, Easy Mike, whose real name is Michael Simpson, and King Gizmo, whose name is John King, who really got put on the map because of this record and then had a pretty successful career, mainly in the 90s, producing mainly known for producing oh odelay yeah odelay yeah producing yeah. producing bex odelay which i i don't care about but much more importantly in the story of kick the jukebox <laughs> producing producing mbop by hansen yeah incredible. very important great great fucking song yeah absolutely also the uh the um soundtrack for fight club would probably be the other thing they're really known for yes but we don't talk about that no <laughs> hey oh god that was an awful dad joke i have to fire myself that was <laughs> terrible <laughs> anyway Woo! yeah so they were put on the map for producing this album and then on the record label side of stuff the beastie boys were being courted by capital records great label to be signed to they signed with capital which put capital and Def Jam in a legal battle, which was apparently really contentious with each other. And they were signed for three records over Capital. 
And then this album was not particularly successful because Capitol heard it, didn't, I guess, didn't know what to make of it and decided prematurely that it was a bomb. I think mainly because they didn't hear any singles, that old adage, we don't hear any singles and, Mm -hmm. you know, any hit singles. And also the BC Boys did refuse to tour under this record as well, which is, Mm. was a tactical error on their part. So this album only peaked at number 24 on the charts and then Mm -hmm. fell quickly off of it, got very good reviews when it came out. One review said it was as important to 1989 as Blonde on Blonde was to the late 60s, Hmm. which is an interesting comparison, but Blonde on Blonde isn't as funny. (laughs) No. And yeah, it seems like an odd comparison, but I guess just if you're just talking about an album that is important, then sure. (laughs) I think, yeah, I think sort of a representation of the times and maybe sort of of like, I guess the voice of the youth, quote unquote, maybe right. a little bit. But yeah, that being said, I wish Blonde on Blonde was as funny as Paul's Boutique, <laughs> personally. <laughs> That's sort of the story behind this, how this record happened and what fate it had before it became hugely critically lauded. It ended up becoming a very high seller for these guys just like way, way, way later. It eventually went gold. It just took a really long time. That being said, I think we should listen to technically the second track from the record. It's really the first track from the record, Shake Your Rump. And it's a great example of like everything that makes this album very good. just ended there with Mike D coming back from the dead. <laughs> so this is this is probably my favorite Beastie Boys song of all time. Mm. Yeah, I I really like this one. Do you yeah, have a great. favorite? Do you have a favorite of all of all time, do you think? Uh favorite doesn't need to be from this record. Beastie Boys. I think like maybe Intergalactic, but also I do think Hey Ladies the song I'm going to talk about later is one of my favorites too. Yeah, Hey Ladies is amazing and Intergalactic is amazing too. Most of them are are pretty great. So this one, the backing track of it was pretty much complete and they played it for them Mm -hmm. while they were all stoned. And this was sort of the track that made them think that an album like this could work with this many samples. Then Mm -hmm. they recorded this as a demo and they played it for Capitol and it's what got them signed to Capitol as well, Hmm. this song. Uh, So it's interesting because Capital clearly heard single potential in the song when they got signed, when that negotiation was going on, but then something failed to materialize and it just wasn't, 
yeah, Capital released this as a single and it just they didn't they didn't publicize it and it went nowhere. The song is really fun. It's up tempo. The chorus is shake your rump. Oh yeah, and, come on. Um, yeah. <laughs> and but also like apparently they kind of finessed Capital and essentially they were saying we're going to give you Fight for Your Right License to Ill Part 2. Yes. And you could see how listening to this is like, oh, this sounds really different and cool, but essentially we're going to get License to Ill for 1989. Um, and it's going to be all funky party jams, which they there are, but it's not by any means License to Ill Part 2. That part is a two. really good point. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right, Kyle. Absolutely. Like, it's like this album is super, super fun in retrospect, and there is a lot on it that is upbeat but it is quite conceptual in mm-hmm. the way it's laid out. It's really dense in the amount of lyrical content and of course yeah. in the amount of sample content. And it's really, it's a album you really have to sit down and listen to. Yeah. You know, Both you really have to listen to it a few and... times to get it, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's just so reference heavy. Uh, I think that's the whole thing about this is that it's really... And it's, 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 it's laden with references both in the samples and lyrically. And it's kind of, you know, I've heard it's kind of been said, but it's so true that like this is like an album for pop culture nerds, whereas the first album was explicitly, they were being in character, but, you know, the people who embraced it were like, let's put this on and beat up nerds. Yes, that is correct. It is. It's, it is. It's, it's, it's a real 180 yeah. in, in terms of the content. And that is something that the the humor flips as well and they do end up just packing the pop culture references dense in a way that we hadn't seen a lot in music before this point right and it was a album for a new generation of people who were more pop culturally literate mm-hmm. and also like people who had been raised on like a reappropriation culture yes. and like a DIY and a recycling culture for as, sure as well. This is coming out of early hip hop, which was very much that and early punk, which was that as well. For and sure. this is such a great melding of all that, of, of all of those influences or in this song, just to, just to comment on it. Cause it's so fun. My favorite references in this are there's that line like Sam the Butcher bringing Alice the Meat, who are two <laughs> characters from the Brady Bunch. Yeah, uh, but they're you know it's making it sound dirty, which is great. <laughs> and then right after they reference Fred Flintstone, uh, yeah. who had probably never been referenced in a hip hop song before that <laughs> point. And then on the musical side, there is you know like seven different samples on this and some of the samples are notable and I feel it's worth talking about them, but there are a lot of sources and I'll put some of them in the show notes. There's a very good YouTube video that deconstructs all the samples of this album. There's a lot of different places to research all of the samples on this album. And apparently Dust Brothers claim there's between 100 and 300 samples. Mm -hmm. Some of those samples may have been so small that they didn't need to license the rights for them. Mm -hmm. But 
it is known that they did clear 105 samples for this album. So there's at least 105 samples on the entire album. Right. And 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 also it needs to be said that it is there is no one other than the Dust Brothers that knows exactly 100% of what the samples that were used on this album. It is not yet known it is not yet known to the general public every single sample that was used on this album. Yeah, which is so fun and like so kind of strange and mysterious. Right. It's so cool. It's really, once again, we talked about this with Fear of a Black Planet, the Public Enemy album that came out at around the same time as this album. Yeah, about a year after this. Yeah, a year after this. Yeah, it was the golden age of hip hop where you could license a huge amount of samples for not a lot of money. This album licenses a bunch of Beatles on it, um, you know, a bunch of, uh, like, there's Led Zeppelin on this album. There's a lot of, like, really expensive music rights stuff on this album, and it only costs them $250,000 for their 105 licensed tracks, which is really low, really low, and a drop in the bucket for, for Capitol Records. Like, that's not a huge right. amount of money to be spending on something like, on that aspect of the album. So that's fascinating. And this album couldn't have existed several years later when yep. the rights to sampling got caught up with the legalities. And I think the, the, the you know, it's, it's talked a lot about how this is like kind of the apex of sampling culture. And yeah. because of the change in the law after this, an album like this could never be made because even the slightest use of any sort of sample is going to cost you you know, pretty much full price. But apparently at the time, the thinking about the popular conception of sampling was, you know, if you use like a, um, you know, Ice Ice Baby, you know, or like uh, Can't Touch This, where clearly the whole song is just, you're taking Super Freak or whatever, Mm -hmm. and you're just 100% stripping out the vocals and putting a new rap over it. That was considered something that needed to be cleared. But if you're just going to take a snippet of a hi-hat from you know, XYZ song, Mm -hmm. that was not even considered something you needed to get cleared, whereas Mm -hmm. that would not be the case today. Anytime you use anything, you got to clear it. And just to note, because it's interesting, specifically Ice Ice Baby changed a lot of the laws when it came to that, because they did sort of a weird re-record of Under Pressure for that, Mm -hmm. and they didn't license it initially or there was something there's a discrepancy with the licensing and it changed the legalities of that yeah Yeah. which is kind of interesting yeah there's the famous great clip of vanilla ice going their song goes dun 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 da da dun dun and our song goes dun 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 da da dun dun yeah what an (laughs) asshole oh my god you know love that song don't love vanilla ice yeah rip van winkle yeah don't love that guy (laughs) so also on the song, something that's so great about it, and I think one of the things that makes it such a good intro to the Beastie Boys in general, is that all of the verses that they have, they're kind of reintroducing themselves and who they are right now. Mm. And I think that that was totally intentional and just incredibly fun. You know, like this is where we learn that MCA has grown a goatee. <laughs> like, just like, <laughs> yeah, for example, yeah. you know, like, but that's like so much fun. Goat. Yeah, he's got a beard <laughs> like a billy goat now, you know. And then, you know, I love that line, you know, I'm Mike D and I'm back from the dead. And I really mm-hmm. do feel like this is them being like, we've really come through this 
difficult ordeal and we're kind of back and we shed a lot of baggage and we're back in a, in a big way, which I think is, is something that has really going for this album. But on this album, because they are all still quite young in their early 20s, they haven't lost a lot of that kind of like bullshit, like prankster, yes. teen bravado. Yes. And I think that this this one is such a great bridge record between their more mature personas and the earlier kind of snotty, goofy frat boy, beastie boys. Completely agree. And I think that's really showcased on a song we'll get to later, uh, Hey Ladies. I think that is lyrically like a, a really a bridge song. Yes, I agree with that. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Hey, ladies is great. It'll be the last song. So continue to listen to our podcast. So (laughs) don't turn it off right now. Yeah. And just before we finish talking about Shake Your Rumpa, a few other little tiny things about it that I think are so interesting. One thing, the actual line, Shake Your Rumpa, is James Brown and Africa Bombada sample from their song Mm. Unity Part 2. Just very cool. Also, this is one of the first songs to take a break to feature a bong hit sound effect. (laughs) And I was watching a a pretty good YouTube video about this album in advance of recording this podcast where they note that that ended up becoming a real trope of hip hop records through the 90s is bong bong hit sounds. Bong hit Um, samples. Right. But it's, it's definitely used here to its like absolute cartoonish height I feel in a really funny way where we hear the bong hit and then there's like a giant ex- like cartoon explosion sound yeah <laughs> it's so funny and and last but not least something that I've always really loved about this song is at the end of it when the three of them start screaming and mm-hmm. it just kind of sounds like a youthful riot and <laughs> I feel like that little portion of the song is everything that's great about punk and hip-hop rolled in together in just one little moment of a song and i think it's just like a very powerful moment very cool very cool anyway (laughs) that's shake your rumpa now let's move on to the sounds of science is what the song is called and this song is uh uh i think my second most favorite bc boys song interesting it's the sounds of science put in a portion of the song that goes from the slower portion of the song to the more manic portion of the song because the whole like first minute and a half of that song is a really incredible slow rap 
<laughs> over top of when I'm 64, the sample from the Beatles from Sgt. Pepper. Yep. <laughs> and there's something I think about the slow into the fast of the song that's incredibly effective. Mm -hmm. And also the way that they rap so slowly and so precisely, I think is just, there is something about it that feels like they've become master craftsmen by this point in being able to really interpret a beat and do something very interesting with it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also it's like a statement song because yeah. like every song up to this point is experimental and indicative of this like sound collage style in their own way but to you know hip-hop is meant to be like 90 bpm 100 bpm and they are like slowing it way down yeah below good point. and you know I, I think it's just like a statement saying like we're experimenting we're seeing if we can get away with mm -hmm. just like slowing this way the fuck down and then also it is a statement because it samples mm. seven different Beatles songs. Right. <laughs> yeah, which is, and then it samples, there's a few other samples in it as well, you know, just in case right. <laughs> seven different Beatles songs weren't enough. But it samples, or uh, no, I apologize. It samples five different Beatles songs and there's two other Beatles samples on the record as mm. well. It samples back in the USSR, that mm. high-pitched, drone i think this is really fun that high-pitched drone that's at the beginning of the song repeated over and over again over top of the when i'm 64 sample mm. is slowed down the jet sound coming in the top of back in the ussr interesting which is yeah. so fun <laughs> right it's like if you're it's so such like a ballsy move to be like i'm first of all i'm gonna sample the beatles like famously mm. litigious um, yes famously and then I'm not even going to use any like iconic Beatles sound. I'm going to like take the jet sound from back in the USSR and they'll like manipulate that. Or even like when I'm 64 and then like, I think later they use the like Sergeant Pepper reprise. I think like uh, they use like, both Sergeant Pepper and Sergeant Pepper reprise just to really yeah. cover themselves. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but they're not, I mean like when I'm 64, like if you know it, but like, you know, they're not sampling Hey Jude. They're, like, manipulating Beatles, like, you know, ephemera. <laughs> yes, yes, they are. They are. And and the, the whole album, people, one of the through lines of the album is that it is a bit of a Beatles love letter, which is an interest, also an interesting statement coming from a young, quote-unquote, fresh rap group from right. the late 80s as well. You know, Paul's Boutique is a reference to Paul McCartney. There's oh. the song um, Eggman earlier on in the record, which is a reference to I Am The Walrus. Yeah. Uh, and then mainly a reference to the fact that they used to throw eggs <laughs> off the roof of the hotel they were staying at when they <laughs> at people waiting in line for the comedy store. Oh, interesting. It's just not nice. <laughs> it's not a nice <laughs> thing to do, you you naughty little beastie boys. Anyway, and then, and then last but not least for the Beatles samples, they sample the end from Abbey Road as well. Uh, that's the guitar riff that is accompanied by Ringo's drums from the Sgt. Pepper reprise, which is kind of fun because mm -hmm. it's the two, it's, it's a, sort of an early little mash mixy there. During this time, there was a interview with Chuck D 
from Public Enemy, who mm-hmm. we have now discussed on the show in, I think, in Ebony magazine. And he was interviewed along with the Beastie Boys. And he says on the record, it is a, you know, a well-known secret in the Black hip-hop community that the Beastie Boys on Paul Boutique kind of beat us and had the best beats. Yes. And then they go on on that interview to ask Mike D specifically about, did you guys get in trouble for using so many Beatles samples? And the Beatles filed a preliminary lawsuit against them. Right. Which is not a huge surprise. And Mike D's response was, what is cooler than getting sued <laughs> by the Beatles? Yeah. <laughs> which and is I think, very funny. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's really interesting. And I think it's kind of a an ongoing mystery as to why they never sued, why this album wasn't retroactively sued into the ground. Yeah, well, there's a lot of stuff from this era that just is sort of was played fast and loose. And I think that because the laws were so nebulous, a lot of other artists and record labels just decided to let stuff go. You know? Which is, yeah, absolutely. But then you contrast that to something like De La Soul, especially Three Feet High and Rising, which came out actually a few months before that, this. That is a fair point. Absolutely. And you can't find it anywhere. And they have been threatened and sued into the ground, which is a real shame because yeah, I think that album, album is on, yeah, and it's on par, I think, with this album in terms of like, you know, sampling ingenuity and creativity and forward thinking. Definitely. Um, it's definitely it's one of shame. the ones that's mentioned, you know, yeah. like it was sort of, it's sort of this one, Three Feet High and Rising, and then Don't Believe the Hype by yeah. Public Enemy are kind of the, considered the golden era like most important sample records and also the most important sampadelia records which is a new term that i learned this Hmm. do you do you know this term this is the this is the term this is actually a considered a musical genre sampadelia like psychedelic sampling yes it was considered a form of sampling and a form of production that primarily existed in hip-hop at this time that was considered a the successor to the way that psychedelic artists in the 60s and early 70s used the studio and weren't considering live performance. Interesting. Isn't that cool? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it is still a term apparently that's used for newer music than this, but this was like the heyday of it. And I'd never heard of, I had not heard that, you know, I'd certainly heard of sample culture and all that, but... Mm. Yeah, anyway. (laughs) This song's great. This song also fucking... Oh, it mentions, I mean, it just shows that they have such a great varied set of interests. They mention just on this track before we move on, Juan Ponce de Leon, because, you know, why not? Who was one of the, uh, um, <laughs> uh, let's, I better make sure I get this right. One of the representatives from Puerto Rico in the 1500s. <laughs> okay. I know, right? Like what? <laughs> you know, geeks, right? <laughs> anyway, let's close it out by talking and listening to Hey Ladies, which is, you know, such a treat of a song.
This is such a great one. I'm so glad that you chose it. Mm-hmm. Another quote unquote single from this album. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that has a very good video as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. At which we should mention all of the videos were shot by uh, MCA and uh, under his pseudonym Nathaniel Hornblower, his supposedly his mysterious Swiss uncle. Yes, but, his Swiss uncle, who he w- used to dress up as and do interviews yeah. as. Which yeah, is right. just more of them being very silly sketch comedian people. <laughs> very true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the video is great and I think kind of ties in. It's pretty much the whole video is them dressing up in 70s clothes and kind of sending up like 70s like uh, black exploitation movies and and um saturday night fever and stuff and famously they talk about it in the documentary but they they were all when they were making this album they were all living together in this big mansion in uh la Mm -hmm. which was previously owned by the documentary filmmaker alex grasshoff Mm -hmm. and his wife had this closet that she had padlocked and they broke it down and pretty much stole all of her old like 70s crazy disco outfits and they used it in this video yeah and i think that mike d is probably wearing one of her disco outfits in the shake your rump video as well yeah yeah they they just would walk around it they like were wearing it constantly yeah apparently mike d was really into those clothes at the time which is (laughs) which is great and he looks very good in them but like very strange like there's something about it that's kind of like there's an amorphous androgynous feel to him wearing those clothes, like just like the way his body looks yeah, and stuff. He was wearing a blouse. Yeah, he's wearing like blouses and like yeah. very weird form-fitting, well, not weird for women, but yeah, like form-fitting bell bottoms and stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, which is which is amazing. And then this one is such a such a love letter to like funk and soul from sure. from the '70s, which is definitely I know something. Uh, a genre that you love a lot so i you know. definitely yeah and and i think like i think you were right um in that uh, one big shift is that in ditching rick rubin and def jam especially on this album you know they are in collaboration with the dust brothers it is very much an extension of their taste and interests and I think a lot of funk and soul, like they love the meters. They yeah. loved, you know, a lot of, uh, they love James Brown, obviously. The Commodores is sampled on this song. So a lot of that from the 70s. Um, and I think a, a, another good point, this is 1988, 89. CDs are taking over L, uh, vinyl and digital production is f- being firmly established as the, you know the way things are done and things yeah. sound digital now yeah this and is what this, we're going to do moving forward basically yes yeah exactly and this is how it's going to be done but this song even though it's very it's digital in that they're using digital technology they are sampling like it sounds so analog because they are sampling all these old super analog sounds from the 60s and 70s um, and, and mixing with tape, which I think is really right. important as well. Very this true. This does sound like a like a like a tape spliced sampled album, as opposed to what came later. Very you know? true. Like yeah. this, this is way more complicated than it, but it owes more to the sounds of like an early tape sampler like Starsky than it does to like later guys that had like really who did great work, but used like more sampling devices and pads and that kind of right. stuff in order to in order to queue up their samples and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, very true. Very true. 
Yeah, and it's just it's just a bop. And and I, I think lyrically too, this song Hey Ladies, you know, it's a bridge to, you know, from their early stuff, which was like frat rock, you know, famously the song Girls, when yeah. people talk about them being like dumb misogynistic kid idiot kids, they yeah. think of that song. And there's some of that here. Don't get me wrong. Like, it's, oh yeah, there's a lot of that on this record. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and particularly this song, but like, you know, they are, they are taking that persona and molding it and morphing it, and it's fun. You know, a uh, guys are chasing around girls song is really fun. Yeah, I agree with that. And also, it, it's definitely an album where you can hear them beginning to deal with more complicated themes but right. them really figuring out how to do it too yeah you know what i mean yeah like it's like because yeah there's a lot of stuff on this record that later on this is one of the albums that later on they were like we do not believe this about women anymore you know right. <laughs> <laughs> like uh you know this this one doesn't fall into the enlightened beastie boys period no no, no. yeah <laughs> but it's is definitely you can tell that it's an attempt and and knowing i think that like definitely retroactively knowing what they became does help this record in terms of its like misogynistic content you yeah, know they do become these like really interesting woke guys who are yeah. really socially involved you know yeah and if they i really do feel like if they hadn't made that step towards that sort of being mature the, uh, we wouldn't still be talking about them. I think it's the full evolution that makes the story so interesting. And this is just sort of that chapter in it, you know? Definitely. Just, but that being said, I do like where they're at here more for an album to listen to mm-hmm. than like the slightly later stuff. And not all of it was like this, but a little later on, I do feel like they got a little too into you know like their song gratitude do you know that song Mm -hmm. or it's nice to be alive Mm -hmm. these are like they're really well wrapped but they're just a little too like kind of soft and sentiment uh for me i feel like there is something that there's an urgency to the earlier stuff that is what makes them so brilliant yeah right yeah and i yeah i think like these three guys it's like a combination of like I mean, a lot of it is just watching three friends. You like, you know, there's nothing better than watching people have fun and you're yeah. listening and watching them have fun. Yeah, yeah, you can tell that this was a real joy to make for them. Absolutely. Yeah. And they were expecting this because of how much fun they had making it and how proud they were of it. They were and expecting they, this they, to be a big hit. You right. Know? And they were listening to it and they were like, objectively this is way better than license to ill license to to ill was huge so if this is better than that why would this also not be huge but we also know as guys that do that create stuff ourselves that it's very often the stuff that you don't expect that people get really excited about yeah uh and for them the metric was album sales and for us maybe kind of in what we do comedy wise is like Twitter likes or whatever. Right. But yeah, sometimes stuff hits that's like, wait, really? This is what's hitting? This is what's resonating with you? And right. sometimes, yeah, it's hard to step outside of yourself to realize. But I, I do I do attribute this album to not being as successful because of Capital's lack of promotion of it. Because really, it was very well received, at least critically, right when it came out. And then it took off as time has moved on. 
and rightfully so. It's a it's a beautiful record. The only thing that this one doesn't have that their last album has, Hot Sauce Committee Part Two, that makes me just want to recommend it in closing, is Hot Sauce Committee Part Two has like fifty more uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm references, which this <laughs> which this album does not have any of because Curb Your Enthusiasm had not come out yet, but. It's a real treat to hear how many times they can rap about Curb Your Enthusiasm on an album, <laughs> on that, that last one. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. yeah that, I don't know if you knew that, but it's so funny if you just listen for specifically the Curb Your Enthusiasm references on that last album. It's very, very funny. I'll have to dig in. <laughs> yeah, as a Larry David fan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, what a treat. Any Any closing words about this guy? What do you think? I mean... It's just a blast. It's a really yeah. fun album and it's fun it's it's it it works if you just want to put it on at a party and it also works if you want to sit down with it and try to dissect the album lyrically and you know pick out the samples. It's just like a fun it's just fun to do. Yeah, no, I agree. I think you're totally right about that. Also, yeah, one more thing in closing for me that I want to mention about this album is the end of it is like nine very short tracks that are all put together called B-Boy Bolognese, just because we haven't talked about it yet. And it's sort of like a cinematic rapping retelling of their like youth in Brooklyn and in New York. Mm -hmm. And I want to mention it because whenever we get to it on the record, I get mad because I'm like, ah, oh, I don't need this. This is too conceptual for me. And then I always end up really enjoying it, like halfway right. through. I'm like, oh, I, I love this. This is amazing. <laughs> like, yeah, because you forget that kind of the whole album is something of like a conceptual collage. And then, you know, B-Boy Bouillabaisse just kind of condenses it down. That's right, it's Bouillabaisse. Like, it's a Bouillabaisse. It's not a It's not a Bouillabaisse. It's a Bouillabaisse, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it just you know, it, it kind of takes that concept and then just puts it on steroids. Yeah, that is a really good point. And also the Dust Brothers during that segment are like cramming in even more samples that are on the rest of the album as well. So it is, it's, a, it's an interesting way to end the record. Yeah, and, and for me, I agree. This is a really cool, functional, multi-purpose record. Absolutely. And... Something about it that is great is it is great all the way through. Like you said, it's great at a party. Also, multiple tracks from this, depending on what you're constructing, is so good for playlists and for mixes mm -hmm. as well. It's just so much of it works on its own and then works as a larger part of a whole. It's a it's a really good piece of work. Kudos to you, Beastie Boys. Uh, well done. Yes, well done. I always have personal stories. I have two for this band that are so fun. I went to summer camp with one of Adam Horowitz's cousins, hmm. AJ Horowitz, who was a total goof. <laughs> <laughs> and Joe Kroger, our old pal, who we had on the show to discuss Fountains of Wayne, uh -huh. was Mike D's, nannied for Mike D's children for many years. Hmm. And... So, and the kids were over at our apartment at one point, and then I was like a topic of discussion in their 
household fairly re- fairly often, which I think oh, is yeah? so weird. And uh-huh. I never I never met him. I never met Mike D. But there's one story that I think you'll find really funny. It was during the Vancouver Olympics, mm-hmm. and Devo was playing. Yeah, a live show at the Vancouver Olympics. And Joe and I decided we were going to watch it together. And it actually started at midnight New York time because Vancouver is three hours behind. Mm-hmm. So she was, Mike D had just gotten home and she was trying to make her way back in time. She was like, listen, I, I got to go because uh, Louie and I are going to watch this Devo show. And Mike was confused. And he was like, well, well, I like Devo. (laughs) I think that's just such a great, sweet story about him. And she was like, yeah, and you know, Louis does too, and I want to watch it with him. So I'm going to go home. Why don't you want to watch it with me? We had big Mm -hmm. discussions about that where we were like, maybe he wanted you to like hang out and watch it with him (laughs) because it made him excited that they were doing a show, (laughs) which is fucking adorable. That's (laughs) awesome. That's the closing. Mike D also likes Devo, as do we. So, amen. (laughs) Oh, everybody, thanks for listening to this episode of Kick the Jukebox. Uh, It's always so much fun to discuss stuff with you, Kyle. Thank you so much. What a treat. Uh, Likewise. Yeah. (laughs) And like I said before, you know, you can rate and review us on any podcatcher of your choice. And you can follow us on all social media. You know, and if you like this podcast, like, please recommend it to a friend because. A word of mouth is definitely like our best advertising for something like this. And we've been on a tear. We've done 70 million episodes since the <laughs> quarantine started. So we have a great backlog it. now of like really, really cool discussions. Yeah, baby. All right, everybody. For another episode of Kick the Jukebox, I'm Louis Perlman. And I'm Kyle Gordon. We'll see you around like a record. Kick the Jukebox is so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the jukebox, kicking a rhyme, talking about music all the time. Oh yeah!